You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Right. Amen, amen. I tell you what, I am ready to preach. Uh, and I think you're ready to listen from what I saw there. I just want to thank uh, this team, and I know Mike says that routinely, but uh, man, I tell you what, I am ready. And, uh, and they, they led us to this point, right? And so we appreciate them and their talent and their service. Uh, I met with uh, prospective new members this week, and they brought up Keegan. So I thought I would share the gossip of what they said about him. And, uh, but not just about Keegan, but the whole team. And just said what they love about Keegan and our worship team is they don't make it about themselves. And, that they're, and, uh, and so in, in today's world, a lot of times in uh, worship ministry, it can be that, and it's, uh, it's about leading us and about preparing us for the Word and, and to encounter God, and I appreciate them because they did that for me today. And so uh, today, I'm, my name is Griff, by the way, and uh, Griff Servati. That's why everybody just calls me Griff. And, uh, and so uh, I'm one of the associate pastors here, and um, Pastor Mike is not here. Somehow he has a little bit going on today. Uh, his son, Tim, who plays in our worship team at times, uh, is getting married. And so this afternoon. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the omniscience of God, but I just have to say, you know, what Griff had a, a part of this whole thing too, but anyway, not really Griff. But So Claire, who's marrying Tim, who is here now, uh, and you, many of you are blessed by her. She served, she's, has served the last, couple, the last year or so in our student ministry, and, and, uh, and so she's an amazing w- woman. And uh, so Claire and my daughter Reagan uh, both attended occupational therapy school at Texas Tech University and met each other there, then became roommates and then when they did their field study, came, Reagan came back home, and Claire came to her sister's house in Aubrey, and therefore, that's how uh, Tim and Claire got to know each other. Isn't that amazing, right? And those stories, and, and how uh, God leads us and, and uh, ordains our past, and, uh, and so we were just excited about worlds colliding tonight, uh, and so just, uh, but Pastor Mike is doing the service. And there is a, a, a little bit of uh, some, some healthy wagering going on, I believe. Uh, I've heard of some wagers going on of, of how many tear, uh, tear breaks there might be during that, that wedding tonight. So I think there's an over-under of six. And so Michael says over. All right, so he's going over. There we go. We got a lot of overs. So, uh, so uh, if you want to get in on that, you might need to talk to Jace. Um, so... Now, I can joke about that. I, my daughter, Reagan's getting married. See, I'm like making jokes about someone crying at a wedding, and you're like, okay, get Griff, come on now, because uh, we know. And let me just tell you something. I am not doing it. I'm not doing Reagan's wedding. I'm not doing it. I'm not performing. I can't get through announcements up here in the three minutes uh, that I do announcements for you. I'm not doing a wedding, and so uh, there's no possible way. I'm just going to be a dad, and, uh, and that's, that's, uh, that's what I want to be, and so uh, so. Don't, no gambling on me, because you would definitely win. So, but today we're picking up in the book of John, John chapter 6, picking up where Mike left off. And I want to tell you, Mike, Mike kind of, if you look at John chapter 6, and you, whether you're on your phone or your real Bible, uh, you scroll on down, there's a lot left in John chapter 6. And Mike said, hey, you can go from, you know, do uh, uh, Jesus walks on water and the bread of life. 
And I, I looked at that, and I was like, Griffin's not going to preach down to verse 70, I think, or something like that. So uh, I picked five verses, and that was, uh, there's a lot, of, lot in there. So we're going to let Mike take over on uh, the Bread of Life next week. But this realization, I hope one of the things you'll walk away from today is how these, these, uh, this, this situation goes together and how important it is and, and, uh, and to our faith. And so... Uh, but we're walking through John, and John's purpose is stated is that so that they might know, that they might know who Jesus is and, and who he is and what he's done for us. And, and we're included in that they. We are included in that day because that day, we get to read John's words, the biography of Jesus that he recorded for us because uh, he wanted to outlive his life and to, uh, to pass on to his generations. And, and maybe he didn't even know to the generations uh, and generations and generations and generations and generations after so that today we can read what John wrote and, and what he experienced and what he saw and, and miraculously more important what Jesus did and what it means to us today. And so, uh, now if you were going to rank, rank Jesus' miracles, and I don't know if that's a spiritual thing to do or not, but uh, if you were to rank Jesus' miracles, uh, you might think in your mind which one goes. You know, raising someone from the dead, uh, healing all these people of sicknesses and illnesses that he didn't even uh, directly do, but they just touched them, all those kind of things. So all these miracles come into your mind, the three dozen miracles that are recorded John says the many miracles that aren't even recorded, right, that they saw. And, and, so, but, and so it's important to see the ones that are recorded because they're there for a purpose. Uh, and John's going to make that perfectly clear for us today. And I hope to make it perfectly clear too. But uh, the most important miracle of Jesus would have to be the one Mike preached about last week. And one of the reasons I would say that is because it's included in all four Gospels. Uh, and so that tells you something. That tells you how, uh, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. And so, uh, and at that ending moment, that mob, they see something they're supposed to see, prophecy fulfilled. And when they, and they were looking for a Messiah, they were looking for prophecy to be fulfilled in the promised one. It wasn't like Jesus was just thrown on earth for us to realize he's the son of God. God built a whole framework, right, to, to point to Jesus so that we would see Jesus, trust in Jesus, uh, those who experience him and those of us who get to walk it through the whole picture and to realize that God ordained this from the beginning of time and laid out a path for us for our re- redemption. And that's why we can have this, uh, this uh, faith, a grounded faith, is because of the whole layout and the framework of what God did through prophecy and fulfillment through Jesus. So they see him as the one fulfilled that they've been looking for. And there's an insurrection and a coronation almost all at once because at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, John says they wanted to make him king then and there. And Jesus escapes and he goes to be by himself. And so uh, I don't know how many of you watched the coronation. There was actually a coronation yesterday, right? How many of you watched it, say that got up early or whatever? All right, there you go. And uh, I'm just waiting for uh, the, the season of the crown, chapter, uh, season eight, for that. Whenever that comes in uh, to play, I'll watch it then maybe. But uh, I love the crown, by the way. And, uh, and so I probably will watch some of the coronations. It hasn't happened in 74 years, I believe, right? Uh, it's just an amazing uh, performance and just well, all, all that's there. But So they wanted to have uh, lead a revolt and crown Jesus as king. And we would probably, if we're trying to lead a revolution... That's something you would probably want is people to, 
to make you, put you into power to change this world. But Jesus steps away from the mob, right, and goes to be by himself and to get away from what they're wanting uh, for him to do. Because as Mike shared with us last week, it was all about political. It's all about overthrow of the Roman government. And they were so short-sighted in what Jesus had come to do that they were missing the point, and Jesus knew that. And so I wanted you to see something, though, that uh, as the promised one, they were looking for him, the fulfillment, but they, were, they knew when they, uh, there was obviously prophecy in what we read in the Old Testament, but then there's extra-biblical uh, prophecies that they were looking for, and they surely saw that day on the mountainside when Jesus multiplied the food. And you can see this in a Jewish commentary, an ancient Jewish commentary that spells this out. And it says, the latter redeemer, or the Messiah, will be like the first redeemer, or Moses. Okay? And Moses redeemed the people out of Egypt, right? So he's the first redeemer. He takes them and gives them freedom from the, uh, for the Jewish people out of Egypt. And so the, the latter redeemer or the re- Messiah that they're looking for, he sa- they're saying this is what we're going to look for. It's one of the signs. What does the Torah say about the first redeemer? The first redeemer made manna dis- to descend as it was written, Behold, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Now they might have missed the point. That God rained down manna and not Moses. But we're, you know, that's, a, that's some other stuff there. But in the same way, the latter redeemer will make manna descend. So they're looking for someone to bring manna. And manna was a, a, was a bread-like substance, right? It was, uh, no taste or whatever, but it provided substance. And so when Jesus performs a miracle on the hillside and feeds from the, the loaves and the fishes of the young man then what you have is, is a sign that he's the latter redeemer or a better Moses for his people. And they see that, and they say, here he is. He's come. This is the one we've been talking about. This is the one we pointed to. This is what all the scriptures and the prophecies have pointed to, and we're seeing it in person. Let's go take Jerusalem. Let's go take the Romans. Let's do this insurrection and a coronation all at once. And so they saw what they were supposed to see. Right? That's a good thing. They saw what they were supposed to see. You're supposed to see the prophecy and the fulfillment in Jesus. And so they saw that. And so, um, and we'll see that in Jesus answers and says um, to talk about the bread of life. And I left that for Mike next week. And so be back for that one. Uh, and so, but I think there's some important things that Jesus does in these five verses that I felt like they just, we just needed to, to sit at this section today. And we will see that these two miracles combined and to see what the, the, the crowd saw, that Jesus was the better Messiah, and that so that we might believe in him. And, uh, and so we see some miracles. There's really three miracles in here, uh, but you would probably miss one of them, and, hope, and we're going to talk about one of those. But you see these two major miracles, right? Feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water. And a lot of times... We would read these, and we teach these in Sunday school to little kids and stuff, and we see them as separate occasions. The reality is this happened in one day. One day, right? And so I just want to ask you, have you experienced a miracle? Have you experienced a miracle? Have you experienced uh, just uh, uh, something extraordinary that just seemed like it was, uh, that it, it maybe sustained you, it saved you, it used maybe some catastrophe that you were averted, all those type of things. Where have you seen a miracle in your life? Have you ever seen a miracle? You ever thought, this is a miracle? So some of you know I take pictures. 
And, uh, and so I did something I normally don't do uh, a couple years ago as I shot a wedding. Uh, give me a football game in the corner, and I'm good with that. But a wedding, I, I said I would do it. I don't know why I said I would do it. I regretted saying I'd do it. I don't want to do weddings. You don't want me to take wedding pictures. But I did it. I did it, did it. I saw the pictures. The pictures were on my card. I didn't download them the first time I saw them because I was getting some other pictures off. The next time I load that card to work on the wedding pictures, they're not there. Not there. Well, maybe five. <laughs> Out of like, and not the five important ones either. So, uh, and I spent, it's, it's the worst Christmas of my life. Chrissy, she's nodding over there. It, it, and it took me about, I worked on this for about six days where it's all I thought about was how to recover photos. I searched Google. I downloaded all kinds of recovery programs. I did all this kind of stuff. I did, this, did, did, did everything, everything you could imagine to do, everything. Even tried a PC, you know. I did everything. And so uh, finally, I think, it was the, I think it was Christmas Eve, I plugged it in. One more something, and all of a sudden they were there. And I downloaded them, I delivered them, and all that. About a month later, I was at a camera store, and I was, this conversation came up, and I told the camera guy what had happened, and he just looked at me and goes, you do realize that's a miracle. He told me it was a miracle. He said, there's no way. He said, once they're gone, they're gone. And he said, that's why on the new cameras, there's two card slots, so that it records it both simultaneously which I do have now. So anyway, <laughs> uh, and so he's like, it's a miracle. It shouldn't have happened. I don't know how that happened. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> maybe I do. So right, so we see these miracles. Now let me share a miracle that maybe uh, goes a little bit more with a, a message than photography. But back in the day, uh, I was a student pastor for here. I've been a part of our church for 27 years. Uh, and so for 20 years, I was a student pastor. And so uh, when I first came here, I'm from Oklahoma, and so we, we, we took our start taking our students to a camp in southeastern Oklahoma in Tallahena, Oklahoma, and it was called Summit Camps. It was kind of a Falls Creek type of camp where you uh, rent a cabin, you cook your own food, you all stay together, and so we started doing that, and it grew, and it really developed in our ministry, and we would go multiple weeks, and uh, junior high week, high school week, we had multiple cabins, and uh, and so God really used summit camps in those days. But before it kind of grew, you know, there's times where some weeks, even at church camp, things aren't going right. I see Jeff smiling, but things don't go right. And so there was one week where things were not going right. Everything was going wrong. Kids were fighting with each other. Uh, Stephanie was getting on to me. I don't know. I don't know. And so all these things that happened, and it was a rough week. And then there was a service, and and one of our students uh, shared this with us after the service, and he said that he felt like God was telling them to respond. And so he did. He responded. But as he started to walk down the traditional thing that you did at camp and to the, to the front, he said, he said, God told him, he said, don't go down there. Just go talk to me. And he led him off outside the open-air tabernacle in the summer where you had to wear jeans to go go to service at night when it was 110 degrees. But anyway, and so off into the woods, he kind of took them. And he said, so after that, he kind of said, 
do you want me to sit here or should I sit here? And, every, and he went to, he did this like 10 different times of where he went to sit down and God would, he'd hear say, don't sit there, don't sit there. And, and, and he finally was asking, where do you want, you know, do I sit here, do I sit here? And, and so we're all listening to this story uh, during devotions and he's describing this situation. And then he talks about, you know, meeting with God there and God speaking to him and, and it just this emotional experience and this amazing experience with God and what God had done in that moment with him and then he and then extra on top of it was he just kind of looked up and and um where there was an uh, a security light off in the distance and the angle and where he was at there in the trees and the branches and the vines was just this beautiful picture of a cross where the trees inter, intermixed and of course people had to go see it at night right so we had to go see it and and I remember one of the students, it was an amazing thing. It changed the week of camp, and I would say uh, it might have changed ministry. Because when students understand that they're not just going to have fun at camp, they're going to experience God, and they go into it with that mentality, it changes everything. And so from those moments on, weeks in the future, didn't they took on a different feel. And I remember a student coming to me and saying, I remember the girl, I remember her, and she said, Griff. Oh, wise Griff. She didn't say that part, but I knew, I knew she intended it. But she said, I don't understand why God doesn't speak to me like that. And my wise answer was, I ask God the same thing. Let's look at the second miracle of Jesus in this chapter. John 6, 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was on the land of which they were going. One of the things we were going to see here in this main point of today, two main points, but this one is that Jesus is the better Moses. And so Jesus, the disciples here, they got into the boat. They, uh, Jesus sends them to the other side, and he's alone. And, the, and he, they send them to Capernaum, and, and, of course, they get into the boat, right? And he says, before it was dark. And so um, when evening came, so probably dusk, because then it says later it was dark. So things had changed. So the setting had changed. So you're getting into the boat. You're going to cross uh, the sea, and, and so really it's a seven-mile lake, right? So they're going to get out into the middle of it when the storm hits. So it's about three miles out, and so that it says. And so, but... It gets dark, right? The scene has changed. And so, uh, and so now, and we don't, we don't experience darkness very often, right? We have, uh, we have lights at our disposal. And so whenever we don't have a light, we just grab our phone, right, and show our, and then, but we always have kind of an ambient light. But can you imagine in this time, in this day, being on a boat, you would have set out confidently knowing that you could cross the sea, 
But in this area, they say that the winds and the storms can come on in a, in a quick moment. And so they set off in the calm waters. They set off in daylight, knowing, thinking that they could get across. And then they're in the dead center middle of, this, of the sea, and then all of a sudden, they can't get across. They can't make way. Dangers are seen. The storm had come upon them. The waves are tossing their small boat. Can you imagine being in a boat in this time, in that darkness, with the rain pelting on your head, and, and water filling from the rain and the waves, and there's no life preservers, right? Only the wood of the boat that has to fall apart for you to have that. And so the fear that would come upon them in that darkness in that moment and then we just kind of get this idea that they're like, oh, there's Jesus walking on the water. All right. All, everything's good, you know? Like this setting, uh, what they would see. And I love the depiction. I haven't seen all of the chosen, but I did look up this part in the chosen uh, and, and uh, this retelling of it. And it shows the disciples fighting, right? Which we, sometimes we don't read into this, right? They're, they're in the middle. They're, they're out in the middle. They're halfway there. They're too, I'm sure some of them are wanting to go forward. Some are wanting to go back. They're arguing. They're fighting with each other. They're, they're desperate. They're in danger. They know that. And then what you see is it's dark, and they're angry, and they're fighting, and pressure, and then there's a lightning strike. And you see one of them who sees a shape of a person in that lightning strike, because that's the only light they have. And he just stops rowing. And then there's another lightning strike, and another person sees it to the point where they, they see that he stopped, and they see he's looking, and he's entranced, and he's afraid because you immediately don't think that Jesus is walking on the water. Now, you do in Sunday school, right, now. But if you're out the, in, the ocean, in the sea in the middle of a storm, you're about to die, you think your ship's going down, and you see a human-like figure walking, you don't just go, oh, that must be Jesus walking on water. No, you think it's a demon, a ghost, something's coming after you to make this even worse of a situation that you think was already dire. And so, um, but then Jesus calls out, and he says, it is I, do not be afraid. And, and the shepherd announces his voice, and the sheep hear his voice and know his voice, right? And, uh, and so we see that some translations say, it is I, but also it can be translated in the same thing when Moses saw the burning bush, and he asked God, and when I go to Pharaoh and the people, who do I say sent me? And he says, I am. And so Jesus says, I am. It is me. I am. Do not be afraid. They knew his voice, and their fear subsided before the waves were calmed. Don't think of the, um, Jesus didn't calm the waves in this situation. That's the other story when he wakes up in the boat and he calms the waves. It, it, when he's getting in the boat, the storm's still raging. It didn't just immediately stop. And so, but the point was is that Jesus got in the boat with them in the midst of the storm. Now, John does not include, you might be thinking there's several stories that are very similar, and there are. John does not include a major part of this story that's included like in Matthew. And that is where Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus, right? That's the famous part too. John doesn't say anything about Peter getting out of the boat. Now, I read some commentaries. I studied for this sermon. Nowhere did it explain why he didn't do that. So I'm just less to kind of think on my own a little bit here. And so, and I don't know, uh, it might be that Peter was jealous. I mean, John was, might have been jealous of Peter, right? 
people get jealous of others spiritually, right? I just shared one of those moments myself. And, you know, if you read the, uh, the, the story of, of the re- of resurrection uh, in John, John, when, they, when they're running to, the, to see Jesus, to, to go to the empty tomb, John makes a point. This is how, what John does, okay? John left out Peter. John, he might have been jealous because John says later, and when they're going to see the empty tomb, that he outran Peter. John wants to make it a point that he's faster than Peter when he's telling us that Jesus is not in the tomb. So it's pretty interesting that John, who didn't get out of the boat, who didn't go see Jesus, didn't walk to Jesus, doesn't include that at all, what Peter did. So I don't know why, but you can take that. But here's, here's one of the things I saw for a why for us today. Because, see, if, if I was just going to teach on this this. This uh, scenario, this miracle, I probably would have chosen Matthew. But because we walked through scripturally, verse by verse in this, in this study, we were, were looking at the way John told it. And so in that, John leaves that out. And I just want to tell you, if I would have preached this sermon through Matthew, I probably would have gave you four steps to keep your eyes on Jesus in the midst of a storm. See, I would have taken this miracle and made it about us which is a great message, one that we probably need to hear. I understand, okay? I'm not saying that. But John is saying here, don't miss what Jesus does. Because when you focus on what Peter does, you miss what Jesus does in this. And he gets in the boat. He gets in the boat. John is reminding us that Jesus is the better Moses. The reality is that Moses brought manna in the desert, somewhat. God brought manna in the desert through Moses, but to the people they saw it as Moses. Jesus fed the 5,000. And see this, in the same day, one of the things in the chosen is one of the disciples says in this moment says, why is this not even the most amazing thing I've seen in this day? Get that? This was one day, one day. So Moses, so he brings manna on the hillside. He, brings, he doubles the food and brings manna or bread on the hillside. And in the same day, just like Moses split the Red Sea when the Pharaoh's army was chasing after him and the Israelites were up against the water and he split the sea and the wind, the wind kept the waters on the sides, right? And they walked across on dry ground. This time... The wind is causing the problem, and Jesus walks to them on the water. We see that both these scenes contain the same elements in the miracles, connecting for us to see that Jesus is the better Moses. And and that's what John wants us to get today. And so let's look at the first Redeemer and, and his first encounter with God, and that of Moses. He's shepherding out in the desert alone, and, and, he, and he sees a bush that's on fire. And that, that wasn't enough to draw his attention. It drew his attention, but not to go to it. It was only that after a long period of time, he realized that the fire had kept burning, but the bush had not been destroyed in the fire. And he was intrigued by that. So then he goes to the bush, and as he approaches the bush, the voice of God comes from the bush and calls his name. Moses, 
which is, by the way, it's my middle name. But anyway, um, he calls his name, calls his name. And I love that God calls our name, that he knows our name, right? And he, but he says, don't come any closer. Stand back. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And I'm not, that's an amazing teaching. It's an important teaching. It's a foundational teaching. But I want you to see this, that Moses approached the bush calmly, but the encounter ends in fear in God's holiness. But the disciples encounter the better Moses in fear, with fear, but the encounter ends with calmness because the better Moses gets in the boat. The better Moses goes to them and is is personal and is in the situations that life brings upon us. And he gets in the boat with us and with his disciples. Looking at their situation of the disciples in the boat, realize this. Their suffering was because they obeyed Jesus. Jesus told them to go on the other side, that he would join them later. They're following Jesus. And they must have thought, surely, because that Jesus had forgotten them, did not care about them. Just like us, when we're facing the storms of life, we cannot see the omniscience of God because the rain is pelting us in the face. And the waves are too high. And the water's rising. And we can't see. So let's look at what God did and what he was doing that they did not know in the middle of the lake. That little storm on the lake would be nothing to the storms that would come soon. And let me just tell you something. I called it a little storm. You know why I called it a little storm? Because I wasn't there. I t- someone was telling me about a surgery the other day, and he's, he, uh, one of our older gentlemen, Walt, and he said, well, it's, it's a minor surgery. And I said, yeah, it is. I said, you want to know the difference between a minor and major surgery? And he's like, well, what? I said, well, minor is when it's happening to you. Major is when it's happening to me. <laughs> and so this is a minor storm. We're not there, right? It's a little lake. But what Jesus was doing in the lake there was, in that time, was even though he just performed this miracle, they needed more in their life to show them that there was more to come and compared to the storms that they're about to face. They needed a deeper understanding of who Jesus was. You see, because earlier in John chapter 6, when it starts, John gives us an amazing qualifier, a scene setter, and he says this, when about the time that Jesus is feeding the 5,000 to start that chapter, he says, this chapter, he says the Jewish festival of the Passover was near. See, they were going to face another storm in just a couple weeks. They would enter Jerusalem and see Jesus hailed as that king that people were wanting again and that think that this was going to be a, an amazing Passover week. They're looking at what, how they're greeting us. And at the end of it, Jesus would die on the cross. They would need the lesson in the middle of the lake to get through that Friday night. This little storm surely played out in their minds at the end of their lives when all of them individually would face persecution and die for the one who got in the boat. Then take into account all the believers who have read this story and read his work so that we might know and the impact it has on our lives. There's no way... They understood that in the middle of the storm. There's no way 
we can understand what God is doing when we're taking on water in the middle of a storm. I told you about camp, but I didn't end the story. See, that year, in the fall, that teenage boy in his junior year of high school, his dad got sick. And very shortly, his dad would pass away. And he called me, and he said, hey, you doing anything? I'm like, no. It's like, can we talk? And it was some night, some week night. And, um, and we drove around, we talked. And I'll never forget, he said, he said, hey, Griff, you know, do you remember camp? Yeah. I remember camp. And he said, I think what happened there, what happened to me, was so that I would know that God is with me and prepare me for this and to prepare me to help my family. And I thought, and I was jealous. It's amazing when juniors in high school see the omniscience of God in their lives in the middle of the storm. Because we typically don't see it. But we know that he's always at work. When we go through these times, we often think we're the only ones to experience such pain. But our scriptures, our history of our people as Christians, and even our own lives and the history of our brothers and sisters in our lives who, are, who we learn lessons from and walk with them on their journeys, show us that we're not the only ones to go through the pains that we go through. But in Psalm 77, and thankfully for these journal entries that record questioning God through these storms of life, in Psalm 77, I challenge you to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read two sections for you today. It says this, look at the honesty of questioning the omniscience of God during a painful episode of in the middle of the lake, maybe so... Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Unfailing love vanished forever. Look at that sentence. Look how dramatic it is. How has his promise failed for all, has his promise failed all, for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Some powerful journal entry into what we go through in sections of our life in the storm. But thankfully, he also experienced life, and he ends this chapter and tells us the end of the story. Look what it says. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. John would say that Jesus got in the boat. And let me tell you something. There are no footprints left behind when you walk on water. And that's what our Savior does. Jesus is a better Moses because he gets in the boat with us. He comes to meet us 
in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the, of the calamity. He gets in the boat with us. But John gives us something, a great teaching on salvation that I don't want to pass up with us today. And so look at me in the last verse there, verse 21. You see the efforts of the disciples to row themselves across the lake, and they had gotten halfway there. Their hands were stuck uh, to the oars, and they were trying to figure out what to go. And so we can surmise that our efforts are useless against storms despite any of our efforts. And then John says this, they were glad to take him to the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to, the, to which they were going. This shows us what happens in salvation. Our efforts, our hands to the oars, our good deeds that we think are so, so good, and yet they aren't. Our spiritual work, what we do for the Lord even, thinks it earns favor with God. It doesn't get us anywhere but stuck in the middle of the lake. And Jesus says to us, if you want to make it to the other side, if you want to make it to Mercy's shore on the other side, I have to get in the boat. You have to give me the oars. We're entrusted with two miraculous stories of Jesus in the, in the sea, Galilee, and with his disciples in the Gospels. And one of them is that other one that you're familiar with where Jesus is asleep and that when the storm arrives and he gets up and he calms the storm. He shows his power over, over the nature. And then... But there's a similar story, right, in the Old Testament where Jonah is escaping God and he's in the ship and he's asleep. And the storm hits the sailors and they are trying to decide why the gods are angry with them. And they wake Jonah up thinking it might be because of him. And he says it is. So throw me over and maybe you'll be saved. And so Jonah is tossed over. He even volunteered to say, it's me. In Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King, he wrote that when Jesus said he was one greater than Jonah, here's what he meant. He meant that this, someday I'm going to calm all storms. I'm going to steal all waves. I'm going to destroy destruction. I'm going to break brokenness. I'm going to kill death. And how can he do that? He can only do it because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly, like Jonah, into the ultimate storm. Under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death, the waves of our sin. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice of what we owe for our wrongdoing. That storm wasn't calmed, not until Jesus swept him away. A reminder that John records this section before Jesus is going to go to the cross on that Passover. John shares this miracle that we often miss because we miss this, right? There's three miracles. Feeding the 5,000, walking on water, and immediately getting to the other side. And he gives us a beautiful picture of salvation, of the gospel, that, that he writes so that we may believe that we can't get to the other side. Only through Christ can we get to the other side. He is the better Moses, John tells us. And then Jesus tells us, and John tells us he's also the better Jonah. He willingly goes overboard into the depths of the sea for you and I. He did that for us. He did that on the cross. In closing today, I want to share a song that has been, meant a lot to me over the past couple of years, and especially this last year. And it includes probably my mantra for a 50-year-old man. Uh, it's at the end of the song, and I'm not even going to talk about that. That's another sermon. But it's some of the most powerful lyrics I've ever heard. 
you won't hear this song on 94.9 KLTY. I'm not sure why uh, or him, but he's an amazing voice and writes some of the deepest songs. This song, I think, wraps up this message all in one. And he talks about this God who would come down from heaven to where we are and how the difference that makes, the difference that Jesus getting in the boat makes. It's not the deepest theological message I could give you today, but it's the most powerful one. It's that Jesus gets in the boat with us. Come down from the stars, show your human scars. Tell me what it's like to believe through my Christ-haunted thoughts that the losses you bought are the nights you peopled with your dreams. Well, I've got no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a Savior who suffers them with me. My Savior sings goodbye, Olympus. The heart of my maker is spread out on the road, the rocks, and the weeds. Come down from your mountain, your high-rise apartment, and tell me of a God you know who bleeds. And what do I tell my daughter when she asks so many questions and I fail to fill her heaviness with peace? I've got no answers for hurt knees, cancers, shootings. The list goes on. But I have a Savior who suffers them with me. Singing goodbye, Olympus, the heart of the maker is spread out on the road, rocks and the weeds. And Aphrodite would not weep, nor Zeus would he suffer for the weak. But have you come to stand inside my pain? All the things I've begged for, reaching the other shore, eternity and evermore, are hidden with me beneath the rain, in the midst of the storm, in the middle of the lake. He gets in the boat with us. We don't have many answers for the many of the whys of life. But we have a Savior who gets in a boat with us. And unless you've been in the middle of the lake, you don't know how powerful that is. And I pray that you know that power. Pray with me today. Maybe today you say, Griff, man, I, I haven't asked Jesus to miraculously get me from this side to the other side. I don't know Jesus as my Savior. Let me tell you something. You have to know Jesus as a Savior. Your efforts are not going to get you from this side to mercy's shore. But immediately, Jesus can do that when you place your trust, your faith, and belief into what he did when he threw himself over the boat, when he sacrificed himself on the cross, when he fulfilled all the prophecies, when he fulfilled the most important prophecies of the Messiah that would save us, not the one who would lead us politically, but the one who would save us, the better Moses, the better Jonah. If you say that's you, man, I'd love to talk to you, whether that's at the end of, while we play this next song, or whether that's at the end of this service after everybody leaves this room, I'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe today you've just been struggling with the oars. It's easy to do. 
when we look at our world from, a, from afar that gets closer and closer to us and the pain, whether you know the pain that happens in this life intimately, know this. Jesus left Olympus. He knows your name. He's walking in the storm. There's no footprints left behind where he's walking because he's walking across the water and he's going to get in the boat if he's not already in the boat with you. And no, it doesn't answer all the whys. We're not God. But God is in the boat. That's the most powerful thing I could tell you today. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.